Welcome to season two, episode one of Which Decade is Tops for Pops. We have reset all the scores. All of our decades are back on zero points each, ready to do battle for the next 10 episodes. Now, before we go any further, we're 10 episodes in, 11 episodes in, if you count the roundup of season one. And there comes a time in the life of every podcast where you have to start rattling the begging bowl. So in order to make that possible, I've done what every podcast ends up doing. I've set up a Patreon and our Patreon can be found at patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. You do have to pay to subscribe to the Patreon. And by subscribing, you will become a member of the Which Decade Supporters Club. I have set the fee for joining the Supporters Club. I've index linked it to the price of a latte in any well-known high street coffee chain. Therefore, for the price of one latte per month, three pounds, you can support the podcast. What you get for that is... For starters, it's a damn sight easy than trying to work out what's going on on Twitter. Because every time there is a new episode or a new results bulletin going up, you will get an email telling you it's gone up and the email will take you through to the Patreon. So there's that. You can also stream all the episodes directly from within the Patreon site if you find that convenient. Also, you've got commenting rights. So you can comment on our episodes and those comments and you can vote on each episode as well and those votes and those comments will be just as valid as the ones we already get through twitter facebook and gmail benefit of that is you can comment for as long as you like because twitter's a bit awkward with the character restrictions also no one else can see your comments that aren't in the supporters club some of you don't like commenting in public and i completely get that you can comment in private you don't have to set up your real name as your username so you've basically got a secure and nurturing which decade is tops of pops a community which we would love you to join benefits for us we'll get a bit of help covering the cost of running this podcast see what seems to have happened, the paradigm shift is it's free to consume content. But if you want to create content, you've got to pay for the privilege. <laughs> so it would be really helpful if we could just claw back some of the outlay that we've made bringing you this podcast. And who knows, maybe in time, let's not push it, but maybe we might begin to receive some modest remuneration for the time we spent putting each show together, which is considerable while I'm just banging the gong a bit here before we get started, if your podcast provider allows this, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a star rating or leave us a review what you make of the podcast. We haven't had any reviews yet, and I think it's about time we did. So if that's not too much to ask, as well as asking you to join the Patreon, again, we'd be very grateful. It's your way of thanking us. Right. Sales pitch over. Let's crack on with episode one. Our randomizer has given us a year suffix of eight and a chart position of 10. So we'll be looking at records that were number 10 of the charts today, March the 28th, 
from 1968 to 2018. And here to discuss them with me, I have DJ Trev. Hello there. And I have Nick Parkhouse. Hello. As always, we've got playlists for the episodes. So if you go to tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 21Y, update to YouTube, which decade 21S for Spotify, which decade 21E for your extra tracks and your bonus bits. Right then, let's get started with the 60s. This is If I Were a Carpenter by The Four Tops. It was the fifth of 11 top 10 hits that The Four Tops had between 1966 and 1988, and it peaked at number seven. They had one UK number one in 1966, which was Reach Out, I'll Be There. Altogether, they had 31 top 40 hits. This was produced by Brian Holland and Lamont Dozier, who produced most of the classic 1960s Motown hits. And together with Edward Holland Jr., they also co-wrote most of them. It was the sixth and final single from the Four Tops' biggest selling album, Reach Out. And all six singles were major hits in the UK that gave them the most successful chart run of their entire career. If I Were a Carpenter was written by Tim Hardin, who put it out as an album track in 1967. Before he did that, Bobby Darin had a number nine UK hit with his version in 1966. It was then later covered by Johnny Cash and June Carter in 1970 and by Robert Plant, ex of Led Zeppelin in 1993, who got to number 63 with his version. Four Tops formed in 1953, and their original lineup didn't change until the death of Lawrence Payton in 1997. They're still performing today with Duke Fakir as the only original member. He's now 87 years old, and Lawrence Payton Jr. has taken the place of his late father. Of all the decades, the 60s is the one that always seems to benefit, certainly for me, most from the rosy glow of whimsical nostalgia. And I think this is just a lovely 60s style number, if there's such a thing as a 60s style. It skips lightly enough along, and I do think it benefits. Like, tunes were shorter back then. The paper cutout bit that you put around a tune was two and a half minutes long, and so it turns up, and it does its bit, and it doesn't drag on and get tedious. It feels optimistic and cheerful, and I think if it's possible for a song to feel summery, it feels like summer. And I made sure that I went back and listened to this, not only when the sun was shining in through my studio window, but also when it was absolutely twatting it down. Uh, and it still felt like a nice sort of summery song. Even though this isn't the music of the flower children, it's easy to picture in your mind's eye, flower children holding hands and practicing free love to this before becoming old and miserable and jaded just like every single generation that went before and everyone that's come since i maybe wouldn't go out of my way to listen to this but i can't have any negative feelings for it i hope the 60s were as nice as they frequently sound i've said all of this before about the 60s this pitch is right there in the middle of that 60s feeling it's a decade i never lived through and i frequently find myself wishing that i had so Welcome to Which Decade is Tops of Pops, the world of Motown, ladies and gents. It took us a little while to get here, but thankfully we are finally here with uh, arguably the least Motown sounding song of all the <laughs> Motown songs. But let's, let's, let's gloss over that uh, very quickly. So I absolutely love Motown. Um, and because I love Motown, obviously I love the Four Tops. My Four Tops are probably 
my favorite of all the Motown artists, I would say. This is actually, funnily enough, probably like I said, the least Motowny of them. Like you were saying, you know, I've listened to the Tim Hardin, the Johnny Cash, the Robert Plant songs. They're all sort of jangly folk song, aren't they? They're all sort of slightly Laurel Canyony birds-esque folk songs. Whereas what the four tops do is they keep the spirit of that, I think, but give it a bit more of a Motown gloss, if you like, that they had had on their other hits. For me, they are at their best when they're doing Loving You Sweeter Than Ever, Reach Out, I'll Be There, Standing in the Shadows of Love, Walk Away, Renee, all of those absolute, absolute classics. I think Levi Stubbs' vocals on this are phenomenal. I think they are brilliant. I think he really delivers it. I mean, he's got a great voice anyway. Slightly restrained. He doesn't give it the full that he used to do a lot of the time in a lot of their other tunes and stuff. So he just dials it back a bit. But vocal performance is fantastic. Like you say, I love the Four Tops and not my favourite of theirs, but it's a great little pop song. A couple of side notes here. I mentioned the Reach Out album from Whence This Sprang. In some ways, the thriller of its day. Six big hits in the course of around 18 months. Commercial high point for the band. It may therefore surprise you to learn of the other six tracks on the album that weren't singles. Two of them were covers of hits by the Monkees. They did Last Train to Clarksville and they did I'm a Believer. Fairly faithfully, actually. Other side note, let's just think about this. Duke Fakir has been a member of the Four Tops for 70 years This has got to be a world record. I did go searching to find out whether this was the case, and I I couldn't confirm it, but surely, surely, 70 years of the same band. I thought I knew my Motown. Just before COVID happened, I'd been spending a couple of years DJing a monthly Northern Soul and Motown event on vinyl. So I had a lot of Motown to work with. But although I knew this song by name, I've never actually heard it until now. I agree with Nick. It takes the Tim Harding song, the Bobby Darren hit, in a very different direction. And to say that it works would be an understatement. This is a masterpiece, I think. I also agree with Nick. It's a superb showcase for Levi Stubbs on lead vocals. Now, a month after his funeral in 2008, I interviewed Martha Reeves. Now, like the Four Tops... Martha Reeves decided to stay on in Detroit after Berry Gordy abruptly moved the Motown operation to Los Angeles in 1972. So there must have been a particular kinship between them. They're about the only two big acts that stayed. She picked out the third Four Top single. It's an orchestrated ballad called Ask the Lonely from 1965. And she said that it still tugged at her heart. And she said of Levi Stubbs, he will always be my Pavarotti. Great quote that. Ask the Lonely is a really great choice if you want to hear Levi Stubbs at his best. And so I think is if I were a carpenter. But then everything about this track is so on point. The Holland Dozier production, Motown's house band, the Funk Brothers holding down that steady beat, the vocal interplay between Levi Stubbs and the other three tops, and that simple swooning modulation that runs right through the song. It's so glorious that for the break, they just basically let it keep playing just so you can luxuriate it here all. I've heard some of the big Motown classics probably a little too often, so I'm really glad that I've found a brand new one to enjoy. Let me entertain you by all the bands and artists who have been the four. Do you want a few of these? There's loads of them. Absolutely. So so let's go for Mega City 4, Apollo 440, The Brothers 4, Unit 4 Plus 2, The Bobby Fuller 4 and The Element 4. 
They're the ones where the fours not at the start kind of thing. These are all the fours. The knights, aces, esquires, preps, lads, seasons, the foremost, four pennies, tops, um, I can't even read my own writing, tet, the four nurses. <laughs> tet? <laughs> four tets a bloke. All right, sorry. I didn't mean to stop you in full throw. Well, I know, I know they are, but it's four, the four pennies, four tet, four nurses, the four strings, the four day ombre, the four jays, and the four kestrels, and the four bucketeers. Four Castrol Manoeuvres in the Dark. <laughs> no, I think it was Bobby J or Bobby somebody and the four Js, and then it was him and the four Kestrels. The Js became the Kestrels. Perhaps they were angrier in their later period. I don't know. Someone either get in touch with Fortet or let's do this ourselves and form a Fortet tribute act called the Fortets, performing <laughs> the works of Fortet in a Motown style. In four-part <laughs> harmonies, yeah. <laughs> now, I reckon you could have a, a four-night with a, a selection of records by all of those people. 24, would that not qualify? 24-7 with Captain Hollywood. Uh, you didn't make it into that list and they were... Yeah, if you're going to have Apollo 440, I think you have to have 24-7. Because they are called Apollo 440 in words. Okay. Yep. Depends on which sleeve you look at, but I'll let it pass. Let it not be said I get too nerdy <laughs> on these things. Here come the seventies with "If You Can't Give Me Love" by Susie Quattro. This was the last of five top ten hits that Susie Quattro had between 1973 and 1978, and it peaked at number four. She had two UK number ones, Can the Can and Devilgate Drive, and altogether 11 top 40 hits. If You Can't Give Me Love is her second most streamed song on Spotify, behind her 1978 duet with Chris Norman of Smokey called Stumbling In. That was a big hit internationally, but it only got to number 41 in the UK. This was written by Nicky Chin and Mike Chapman. They were a highly successful songwriting duo. They wrote a long string of hits for The Suite, including their number one blockbuster, and also for Mud, including their number ones, Tiger Feet and Lonely This Christmas. And they also wrote both of Susie Quattro's number ones. They had some other big hits in 1978. Those were Oh Carol by Smokey, Kiss You All Over by Exile and Lay Your Love On Me by Racy. And their last big hit as a songwriting duo in the UK was Tony Basil's Mickey in 1981. Mike Chapman went on to have a very successful career as a producer, most notably producing four UK number one singles for Blondie. So three things that I have learnt about Susie Quattro in the last couple of weeks. So I've, I've heard of Susie Quattro, but not much more than that. One, that she's American. I had gone through my entire life assuming she was British because she had hits here and stuff, but clearly she is not British. I've also learnt that, and this is magnificent, it's her actual name. So you'd think surely she's made that up for promotional purposes, but no, it is her actual name, which I think is absolutely magnificent. And the third thing I've learned, not knowing anything about Susie Quattro, I'd always assumed that she was kind of this pioneering, you know, rock chick, 70s feminist icon type, pre-Debbie Harry thing. But it turns out she was essentially doing exactly the same thing as the suite were, and then in her later career, just recorded a load of Elvis covers as far as the best of Susie Quattro that I found the other day went. So I was quite surprised at how vanilla a lot of the stuff is. 
Can the Can is just slayed or sweet with a female vocal, isn't it? I mean, I'm not surprised if it's the Chin and Chapman, who are the sort of Stock Aitken and Waterman of that period, weren't they? This song, I mean, it's nice enough. It gives me slight kind of Peter Frampton vibes. I felt it a bit sort of show me the way, sort of Jerry Rafferty vibes. I think it's the sort of twangly guitar in it. I mean, I think it's fine. I, it's it's one of those songs, a bit like that Halsey one you've talked about before, where I've heard it probably a dozen times. I couldn't whistle it to you now, even though I've heard it a lot in the last two weeks. What I do love about it, the final thing I would say about it, is that the B-side of this song is called Cream Dream. And I will let the listeners draw their own conclusions as to what she might have been on about there. So if anyone's new to this, I will let you know that in season one of this podcast, we discussed the four seasons. And now Susie Quattro comes along and is only the second artist we've ever had to discuss who's had a pizza named after her. Uh, and this really is sort of <laughs> Quattro Formaggio. Um, with the four tops... I know the four tops, I know the music, and I had an idea of what that would sound like. And then that song came along and didn't sound like it, but I still enjoyed it. I had a definite idea of what I thought this was going to be like. And then it came along and it didn't really sound how I was expecting. And I think it it, it probably fared worse for that. When she's playing this, she, she looks like she's trying to rock out to it. And it's not really a particularly heavy song. It doesn't have those, you know, the sort of status quo type thing that she has in some of her earlier stuff. Uh, it makes me think that she's much more at home in that galloping rhythm, the leather clad earlier things that she did. It's okay, is this, but it's, it's a bit Rod Stewart in a bad way for me. It's not disco, but it references disco. The Go Love Yourself as a lyric is very proto-Justin Bieber. And the guitar riffs are very George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. And I don't think it all fits together, the sum of the parts. There's some nice artists that I've referenced there. This, just for me, feels like she doesn't really know where she's going. It's towards the end of the decade and maybe something new needs to come along for her. I don't think it's bad. But it's not wonderful. It just seemed to lack direction. It it lacked a bit of heart. It didn't feel very sincere for me. And as I say, when you watch her in the videos and she's sort of doing this back and forth chant along and the tune isn't that driving, it was just a bit sort of filler for me, really, I'm afraid. It's a shame our listeners couldn't see Trev doing the uh, Susie Quattro shimmy, absolutely nailing it. (laughs) My sister once went to a party where everyone had to dress up as a pop icon and mime to whatever track they'd chosen. My sister went as Susie Quattro, mimed to Devilgate Drive and won. And she did exactly the shimmy that Trev did well that I can't do at all. She's another one of these American artists who wasn't getting any success in the States, moved to the UK and found her fortune in the UK. However, in 1978, at the time that this was a hit, Susie Quattro was actually a member of the cast of Happy Days, where she played a character called Leather Tuscadero. What a name. She'd never had much success in America. She's actually from Detroit, same as the Four Tops, incidentally. But being on Happy Days, it just raised a profile enough to give her a number four US hit with Stumbling In with Chris Norman. And while this one did the business for her in the UK, she hadn't actually been in the top 20 for over three years. So this was quite the comeback and some further hits were to follow. 
bit about Chin and Chapman or Chinny Chap, as they were often referred to. They really dominated pop for about three years in the earlier 70s. Uh, yeah, just like Nick said, the Stock Aitken Mortimer of their day in the pop kids love their stuff. Older music fans thought they were appalling. I was one of the pop kids who loved their stuff. Uh, the first single I ever bought was a Chinny Chap single, Tom Tom Turnaround by New World from the summer of 1971. That was a kind of folk pop thing just before they embraced glam rock with the sweet. And after glam rock ran its course, they went back to a more soft rock sound with Smokey. They'd already had a number of hits with Smokey before this came out. And that is where they lost me. I didn't rate Smokey at all. I actually really disliked them. If You Can't Give Me Love is cut from the same cloth as Smokey, specifically brushed denim, I would say, worn as a waistcoat and paired with a cheesecloth shirt. There was a lot of brushed denim and cheesecloth soft rock around. You two have made your own comparisons. I'd add Dr. Hook, the Bellamy Brothers and Bonnie Tyler, who this song particularly reminds me of. It's a well-tailored song for Susie Quattro. The lyrics allow her to assert herself and express scorn towards her would-be Casanova down the disco, who's skipped the wooing stage in favour of the let's-go-back-to-my-place stage. And she sells the song very well indeed, I think. It's a far cry from her glam rock hits, but that same tough persona is still in there. And I think that's what makes it ultimately work. I'm pretty sure leather Troscadero is a pizza as well, Trev, I think. <laughs> if you go to the right pizza shop. Yeah. OK, here come... The 80s. Represented by Eighth Wonder with I'm Not Scared. This was the only top ten hit for Eighth Wonder. It peaked at number seven, but it also reached number one in Italy, where they've been having hits since as far back as 1985. They only had one more UK top 40 hit. That was Cross My Heart, which reached number 13 in May of the same year. It was written by Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe from the Pet Shop Boys. And it was also recorded by the Pet Shop Boys on their introspective LP that came out later in 1988. Eighth Wonder were fronted by Patsy Kensit, who had just turned 20. After the band split up, she returned to acting with recurring roles in Emmerdale and Holby City, and she joined the cast of EastEnders earlier this year. So I didn't think I knew this. And then when I'm watching the video and this clearly recognisable woman pops up, I'm like, I know her. I'm going to have to work out who it is. And then suddenly, bang, I know why Patsy Kemsit's famous. I'll be honest with you. I always thought Patsy Kensit was one of those people who was famous for being famous, kind of like a forerunner of the Cardassians and people like that who've come since. And then, you know, scratch the surface and she's done quite a few films and she's got a decent acting career. But yeah, I suspect this is probably the first thing that I saw Patsy Kensit in. But I don't remember seeing this at the time. Kylie Minogue ended up having a very similar vocal style to this in some of Kylie's stuff anyway. And I think it sounds great. By the time the chorus has kicked in, I'm like, oh, I actually do know this. But I don't know whether or not it's this particular version or it's the Pet Shop Boys version that I know. It really does sound like a Pet Shop Boys song from the opening Obviously, take away the fact that he's got female vocal right at the beginning. But, yeah, the synth-driving nature of this, really. Yeah, you could tell it's Pet Shop Boys. It really went under my radar at the time. But I think it's very, very good 80s pop. And given that this came out when I was 13 and starting to notice girls, 
I think it's wild that I didn't know this video. I mean, I really don't need to hear Patsy Kenzie speak French again. But I could listen to this and absolutely watch the video all the live long day. At the end, it sounds like the last thing she says in French is, my name is, and then doesn't say anything else, which sort of kind of leaves you go, uh, but I really, really like this song. I've been listening to it a lot since hearing it. I have no recollection of this at all. I didn't recognize the video. And it is it is the type of video that would have stuck in the mind of a 13-year-old boy, isn't it? She's lovely. So I, I couldn't tell you how this has got into my head. It could be from the Pet Shop Boys, although I don't think I had that album by the Pet Shop Boys. I have a couple of albums by Pet Shop Boys. But I really like it. It's well made. I think she sounds fantastic on it. Everything fits together, lovely. Just very, very nice 80s pop music. Nick, I know this one is in your celebrated definitive work on forgotten pop hits of the 1980s, so I think you'll be able to tell us quite a lot about it. Yes. So let me tackle that one. I think that what you might be hearing at the end of the video is her saying, J'ai pas peur, which is I'm not scared in French. Uh, that makes more sense, yeah, than my name is. It won't surprise you to know that I love this. And de barrissemois de chien avant qu'il mort which she says in the middle of it is still one of the most fantastic moments ever. Eighth Wonder were massive in a lot of places other than the UK. I mean, she joined the band when she was 15. It was a brother's band. She auditioned to be the singer. They had a number one in Japan. They were massive in Italy and all sorts of places. You know, they'd been going for years. She left for a bit because she was in Absolute Beginners. So she left to be in uh, the Absolute Beginners film and then came back and then recorded this album. Part of the album, incidentally, produced by Mike Chapman off of Chin and Chapman, uh, produced part of the album for this in L.A., the Pet Shop Boys are, for me, in my, in my personal opinion, the greatest British pop band of my lifetime. I don't know anybody I like more than them. And Trev is absolutely right. This is the Pet Shop Boys with a Patsy Kensit vocal. Because if you listen to the Pet Shop Boys version of this song, it is almost identical other than you get Neil Tennant singing it. It's essentially exactly the same song. They wrote it, they produced it. They could do nothing wrong in the spring of 1988. They were in the top 10 this week with Heart... For a pop freak like me, their second single was Cross My Heart, which had already been an album track on the Martika album, which I had also loved and bought and played to death. So when they released a cover of a song that I already loved from the Martika album, you know, it's just, I mean, talk about stars aligning. Everything was just absolutely bonkers. We've talked about, you know, nostalgia in your life and stuff. I was looking at the charts this week and it was just full of the stuff that I loved when I was 14 years old. Pet Shop Boys, Bross, Kylie Minogue, Sunita, Aha, all in the top 10 this week. Eighth Wonders I'm Not Scared climbed three places from number 13 to 10 this week. You know it was number 11 in the charts this week, right? We literally, Mrs. Climby Fisher's Love Changes Everything was <laughs> number 11. We have literally missed talking about it by one chart place. It was actually one place behind I'm Not Scared in this week in 1988. Honestly, it's going to evade us forever. The meme continues. I know. New season, same old meme. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I was like, surely it can't be like one place below this in the charts. And it absolutely was. So I listened to the album a couple of times. I Obviously, I had it at the time. It's not great. It is throwaway i think i'm not scared is by some distance the best thing on it the rest of it is a little bit throwaway and not fantastic obviously they didn't have much more success after this but it's, it's a it's an absolutely wonderful at shop boys record basically i've devised an only connect style sequence question 
and I suspect Nick may be able to answer it. Complete the following sequence. Big Audio Dynamite, Simple Minds, Oasis, what comes next? Oh, no, you're not getting it. What comes next, shall I tell you? Hazy Fantasy. And that's because those four bands contained Patsy Kensett's four husbands in chronological order. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> she married Dan Donovan, Jim Kerr, Liam Gallagher and Jeremy Healy. Wow. Did rather cement her reputation as a serial rock star wife. And that did rather obliterate her skills as a pop star and as an actress, although she did eventually pull things back on the acting front, became more recognised for who she was rather than who she was with. And quite right, too. Listening to this and its follow up, Cross My Heart, and watching the videos for both, I think that Patsy Kensett had the potential to be a longer lasting pop star than she turned out to be. She's great on the I'm Not Scared video, beautiful, stylish, charismatic, all the things you need. And yeah, that breathy, kittenish voice that Kylie went on to develop further down the line in her own career. The song has the Pet Shop Boys all over it, but to me, it sounds like the Pet Shop Boys from 1986 rather than the Pet Shop Boys from 1988. It's got the Italo disco chug of their earlier work and the stuff that appeared on their debut album, Please. Puts me in mind of stuff like Love Comes Quickly, Paninaro, In the Night. Given the success that Eighth Wonder were already having in Italy, it made sense to give them an Italo disco style song to perform. It's a good match. It's dramatic, it's enigmatic, it's more about moods than meaning. I don't fully get the meaning. That isn't always the case with Pet Shop Boys songs, but this is a mood piece for me. Okay, it doesn't grab me quite as hard as some of their other work, but that's raising the standard very high. This is a really fine piece of work. Very glad to see it appear. Look at Patsy Kenzie. I mean, I was 15 when Lethal Weapon 2 came out, and Nothing was more exciting to a group of 15-year-old teenage lads than going to see Patsy Kensett get a top-off in Lethal Weapon 2 in 1989. She played a South African in the worst South African accent you've heard in your life. But, yeah, did entertain the teenage boys in the audience. <laughs> Shall we park our adolescent longings <laughs> and segue into... This is Father by LL Cool J. It was the fifth of nine top 10 hits that LL Cool J had between 1987 and 2006. And it peaked to this position of number 10. He had one UK number one in 1997. That was Ain't Nobody. And he had 17 top 40 hits in all. LL Cool J stands for Ladies Love Cool James. And his real name was indeed James. Father samples, Father Figure by George Michael, which had been a number 11 hit in 1988. And the lyrics are autobiographical, as I'm sure we'll come to discuss later. It was really funny. I was listening to um, George Michael's Faith album the other day. I'd heard One More Try somewhere, I think, and I thought, oh, I love that song. So I went to listen to the album. And then when I heard Father, I was like, oh, that is weird, because that is obviously Father Figure from George Michael. So uh, let's first start by acknowledging the boring names of well-known rappers. So we had what was Snow called? Darren. And then obviously we've had Gerald Easy and LL Cool Day's just flat out James Smith. So, you know, it's slightly less exotic, isn't it, than LL. This is not the sort of thing that I like at all in any way, shape or form. However, actually, can 
listen to this in a way that I can't listen to a lot of this other stuff. I don't know whether it's the timbre of his voice. I could listen to Coolio in a way that I can't listen to a lot of other people. And I don't know whether I'm drawing any sort of reasonable comparison there, but I think it's just the sound of it is less grating to me. It's maybe just his voice is deep. I don't know. I actually quite liked I Need Love, which I think was when we first arrived at LL Cool J. I actually quite liked that, whatever. Mike will have known him since he was a child in Compton in 1943 or something, when he was just a boy, when Jesus was a lad. Lyrics are fantastic. I mean, incredibly personal. You know, he says at the beginning, I felt like telling the story of my life. And you do feel that you're getting that from it. It is a very personal tale. All I ever needed, all I ever wanted was a father, which is quite moving, actually, in in quite a lot of ways. So absolutely not the sort of thing I like. However, I think this is fine, actually, as this sort of stuff goes. It's at the very much the tolerable end for me of this kind of is it hip-hop, rap, hip-hop, whatever it is, kind of the spectrum? And also, I won't hear a word against LL Cool J because he was in the film Deep Blue Sea and hit a killer shark with a frying pan. So absolutely won't hear a word against the man. So LL Cool J is capable of making more hardcore rap stuff, but he is one of the rappers quite responsible, I think, for the more radio-friendly R&B, soulful-sounding hip-hop stuff that kind of took over. I think he was very influential in ushering in that sort of new era of rap. And for me, that new era of rap ruined the genre for a long time. And that's unfortunate for LL because his stuff's great. There's loads of artists who do this. Lots of people think they hate Coldplay, but they actually hate all the bands who came along and tried to sound like Coldplay. Don't get me wrong, I know that there's loads of people who hate Coldplay. They're incorrect. But when an artist is very influential, you kind of hate what it did to the music. And there's a track by Cannabis called Second Round Knockout that is a solid diss track aimed at LL Cool J about what he was doing to rap music at the time. But the thing about LL Cool J is all the stuff that came after, that soft R&B rap, stuff that I don't really like was it just a bit vapid and mainly about how nice your car is and how much money you've got and how much sex you're having whereas LL Cool J stuff isn't I mean Phenomenon is about that but he did loads of really really great songs Nick mentioned I Need Love it's a brilliant it's just a love song it's really really good it's quite introspective he's saying I need that in my life I need to do better as a person so unfortunate that LL did usher in or help usher in that softer, more chart-friendly R&B rappy sound. But it doesn't stop him being an important artist and it doesn't stop him being a good artist. I do think it's unnecessary of him to open this song with the explanation saying how he's trying to inspire people. I think it would hit hard if he just came in and did it because this is a, a very shocking story of his life. And to put it to music and get that message over so clearly, you you listen to this, you can't mistake what has happened to him. I think it's brilliantly done. It isn't the type of hip hop I particularly like. You know, musically, it's a bit gentle, but it's positive. It's affirming. It sends a strong message. And whilst maybe I do think that rap needs a slightly harder edge, I also think that rap needs the positive message, the anti-violence message that some of the great gangster rap doesn't have that positive message. You know, there's some awesome gangster rap out there that is actually just about killing people and popping a cap in someone's ass. And so lyrically, that's not great. Whereas this lyrically is fantastic. So 
maybe musically it's a bit gentle for me but it's very very positive this is someone telling their story to music and you've got to say fair play to ll for coming through this and making a massive success out of his life it's a moving song it's not the kind of hip-hop that i particularly like but if i have to listen to this kind of hip-hop ll cool j would be who i would choose to listen to because i think he's very very good at it and i don't want to take anything away from him for coming through it as he says in the uh, lyrics be strong okay og founding father of hip-hop talking here now i was a big ll cool j fan in the 1980s i bought all his early singles that came out on def jam rock the bells in particular that was a real game changer for hip-hop when it came out in 1985 I love tracks like I Can't Live Without My Radio, I'm Bad, Go Cup Creator Go, several more. Then, for a lot of us who are into hip-hop and Def Jam at the time, he completely blew it with I Need Love. It got into the charts for the first time, but we all rolled our eyes at it. One of my friends called it I Need a Hit, and we all nodded. In fact... I Need Love went down so badly with LL Cool J's original fan base. By the time we got to see him headlining his first UK tour with Public Enemy and Eric B and Rakim as support, he'd actually dropped I Need Love from the set list because it was getting booed by the crowd. I don't think it helped that he had a bed lowered onto the stage in order to give the song a full performance. It was interesting seeing him on that package tour. He was the headline act because he's had the hit with I Need Love. But all the excitement in the room was for Public Enemy. He just couldn't compare. Plus, some of his live vocals sounded, shall we say, a little too good to be true. Let's just leave it at that. After that, it took him eight more years to get back inside the UK Top 20. And although he had a run of eight hits between 1995 and 1998, for me, he was still the busted flush. The songs all seemed to be about how amazing he was in the sack. He tended to use very well-known samples that did a lot of the heavy lifting. Case in point, Ain't Nobody, which got to number one. I just marked him down as a lazy sellout and I looked the other way. That means that I missed this one completely when it came out. So it has come as a major revelation. I had no idea he'd ever recorded something quite this personal. Yeah, LL Cool J's father did shoot his mother and grandfather when he was four years old. His mother did meet a physical therapist in hospital while she was recovering from the shooting. The therapist did become her boyfriend and he was physically abusive to LL Cool J. So once you know that, this becomes a remarkably powerful piece of work. It wasn't the first hit single to sample George Michael's father figure. PM Dawn got there first in 1993 with Looking Through Patient Eyes. But the connection here is obviously a good deal more direct. And by twisting the meaning of what was originally a love song, the sample gives added weight to the performance. I've searched in vain to find out more about the wonderful gospel choir on this track. Their lead vocalist is particularly amazing, but they were never credited. So that seems like a major injustice for anyone listening to this whose father also failed them badly and i know of what i speak this is a cathartic piece of work and it ends with a positive message never give up overcome the pain keep the faith move forward keep striving i never expected this from ll cool j and it has actually changed the way i view him 
In his timeline, whereabouts did Mama Said Knock You Out come? Mama Said Knock You Out was definitely after I Need Love. I don't know how well that did in the UK. I know it's like a big US hit. I Need Love really torpedoed him commercially in the UK. Ah, yeah. Did he do Mama Said Knock You Out? Kind of as a response to the backlash against I Need Love. Maybe I'm thinking that, actually. You know, in the same way that um, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince did Boom Shake the Room, because everyone was saying that they were just too commercial, so they needed to do something that wasn't commercial, and Boom Shake the Room was their answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> 1991, Mama said, knock you out. Yeah, so I Need Love was 88, was it? Yeah. So, yeah, it was him going, right, let's do another banger. On we go to... Represented by H2O featuring Platinum with What's It Gonna Be? There's no I in Platinum, so I have to say it that way. Platinum. This was the only top 100 hit for H2O. It peaked at number two for three weeks and was kept off the top throughout by Duffy and Mercy. Platinum did have one more hit, Love Shy Brackets, Thinking About You. That got to number 12 in October of the same year. H2O were a duo from Leicester. Platinum were a three-piece vocal group from Manchester. So the Garage and Baseline House is kind of a, a bizarre offshoot of both house music and jungle music. And then also with a little bit of sexy R&B my mates can dance to, chucked in for good measure. A lot of the hits are kind of daft. You've got like baby cakes and sweet like chocolate and enter, select. But in the right club, on the right set, on the right night, I think some of the tunes are absolutely brilliant. This is more towards the baseline end than the garage end of things. But I, I don't want to hear a lot of two-step garage in a row. I don't want to hear a lot of baseline in a row. But I do like it. I like the odd bit here and there, sort of peppered about a set. There's lots of energy to it, and it's really, really well made. You shouldn't do what did happen at the time, confuse H2 T-W-O, with the US hardcore band H2O, who were also at the same time, so I was doing commercial dance nights, and I was doing hardcore punk and metal nights, and I got people asking me for H2O at both nights, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, just to be absolutely clear, and once at the metal night I was doing, someone wanted me to play some baseline house, uh, and it was like, yeah, no, you're in the wrong one, but yeah, make sure that you don't get those confused, but I've got to say, <laughs> take the time to check out the video. It's not high art, <laughs> but it is attractive people dancing. And there is actually a storyline to it. And it's a time when in dance videos, most of it was just no context girls dancing in their pants. And here there is a context. There's a story arc to it to vaguely justify it. You could be artistically snobbish and say, oh, you know, it's just fit people dancing watching fit people being fit is kind of sexy and it's very very pop music for me the private school setting does give it a little bit of an air of a bend over video who is uh, someone who makes videos who i've heard about but i've never watched um but just as a package the whole thing fits together really really nicely i think it's platinum do the slightly schoolyard chanty type vocals and it's the one out of h2o who does the lead vocals the female lead vocals i think i'm not sure but whatever it all fits together really really well it's a good i think a good piece of pop music dance music did they invent that thing it's really weird that thing where you shout your band name 
you know, like Jason Derulo does. And the intro to his songs, he just goes, Jason Derulo. Like, it's almost like he's branded it so you know who it is. Did H2O invent that by just going, H2O? I don't know. Every grime freestyle video ever starts like that. Right. Because it's a bit like Paul going, Paul! And Paul and going, Paula! An in intro to the song, isn't it? It's re- it's just really weird. I mean, I vaguely remembered this from the time, but only vaguely. And I sat there and I thought long and hard about this and thought, oh, what can I say about this? And I uh, I got nothing. Um, <laughs> you talked last week, Mike, about your EDM blind spot. Yeah, this is worse. My blind spot is, I mean, saying it's dance music is like a much too <laughs> wider thing. I went off the charts, start, stop listening earlier than you because I went off it in the Stardust Music Sounds Better with You era. I didn't like that. I don't like Mojo Lady. I don't really like Spiller Groove Jet. I don't like Fatboy Slim particularly. So I went off it in that Ibiza anthems phase. I know this is much later, but this sits in that same broad category for me. It's that sort of Ibiza beach bar bone party sort of thing. Ayanapa. This is Ayanapa music. Is it Ayanapa? Right. Okay. I've never been to Ayanapa. So it sort of sits in with that with me. So I have a massive blind spot for a decade's worth of the commercial end of whatever it is, Ibiza, dance, trance, garage. It's Aya Nappa. Uh, if it's not going in, Nick, when I say Aya, you say Nappa. Aya. Nappa. Aya. Nappa. There we go. That, we've just recreated one of the finest moments in garage. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. H- H2O. Um <laughs> So I don't like the beat. I find the vocals incredibly kind of characterless and stuff. It does nothing for me. So, yeah, I'm afraid it sort of sits in that whole enormous pot of all of those records that I don't really like. So I'm afraid, no, it does does nothing for me, this. There are some tunes that whenever I hear them played out, I just have to get up and dance to them, no matter what. Here are some examples, decade by decade. From the 1960s, Nolan Porter's If I Could Only Be Sure. Northern Soul Classic. From the 1970s, Donna Summer, Love's Unkind. 1980s, New Order, Bizarre Love Triangle. 1990s, Saint Etienne, He's on the Phone. And from the 2000s, this tune is almost certainly at the top of my list. It's got a wonderfully propulsive urgency to it with one of those hooky bass lines that I'm a total sucker for in dance music. See also Sandy B, Make the World Go Round. More recently, Eliza Rose, Baddest of Them All. Also from the 90s, Nush, You Girls Look So Sexy. Love all that. Did it make me go out and immerse myself in the exciting new world of Baseline House? No, it didn't. Last time I suggested, perhaps somewhat rashly, that Avicii's Levels was the only EDM track that anyone needed. For me, What's It Gonna Be was the only Baseline House track that I needed. There is another connection between Avicii and H2O in the video. If you look at the video for Levels and the video for What's It Gonna Be, both of them feature nerdy-looking guys who suddenly bust out exuberant dance moves. That is not a recommendation for you to watch the video, (laughs) as I think the track's musical genius is not even remotely reflected in its accompanying visuals. But then fit birds in bras and pants were never really going to do it for me anyway. Is its genius an accidental one? 
Possibly, yes. In this respect, it rather reminds me of another one-hit wonder from earlier in the decade, Three of a Kind, who got to number one with Baby Cakes. You get the feeling that both of them were made very quickly on a low budget by people who had one brilliant idea and needed to get it out there as soon as possible. I think a lot of people are going to hate this, and I suspect that a lot of the same people hated Three of a Kind's Baby Cakes for similar reasons. But... I shall be severely disappointed if anyone dares to use the word chavvy in their dismissals. There is nothing inherently wrong for making music for school kids to blast out on the phones at the back of the bus. And this, for me, is an utterly sublime piece of noisy, bratty and unruly teenage street music. I can't stand baby cakes. There you go. I'm not a fan of baby cakes, but I am a fan of dance music when it becomes slightly ridiculous. And this, you know, it, it is slightly ridiculous. Uh, baby cakes is one step too far for me. But then, you know, when we talked about MC Cyril and McCoy from the 90s earlier, that's slightly ridiculous. There's loads of that kind of stuff. One of the things I, I find interesting, so when you say, sort of, you know, the chavvy thing, there's loads of dance music that is not cool. You would go, oh, well, it's music for chavs and stuff like that. But some of it crosses over really well. And I think Baseline is one of the styles that has crossed over really well and has had mainstream success. And I find that remarkable when you think of like how big Happy Hardcore was. Yeah. And Happy Hardcore has been around a lot longer. There's not been that much chart success with it. Techno Head. With Techno Head was, was Gabba given yeah, a, yeah, a happy yeah. hardcore rub scooter but that's not really so i think you've got to give them credit where it's due because they possibly are only a one idea band so fair play they've had one idea but i think they've nailed it and it's hopefully paid them off for the rest of their lives and good on them in that case because there's loads of people with in dance music plugging away year upon year making more and more records because they've never managed to actually have a hit. And I think Baseline House is still around, isn't it? As a kind of underground genre, it sprung up in South Yorkshire. I think that's kind of still its hinterland. There's a Spotify, big Spotify player, it's called Charva Nights. And there's quite a lot of Baseline in there, along with Bad Boy Chiller Crew stuff. And I must admit, I find that quite a pleasant listen in small doses. And they, there you go, they're owning the word Charva there not using it as an insult, much like queer and all of that. Yep. So I'm quite anti-teenagers playing their music out in the back of the bus as well. I don't want to listen to it. Listen to it on your headphones. Uh, I think as an aside, I mean, just listen to anything on your phone, on your headphones. Someone was sat on the bus the other day watching a TV programme with the volume up. Get out. I could barely hear myself speak really loudly and slowly at my children so that everybody else could enjoy that. <laughs> it's time to move on to... This is All the Stars by Kendrick Lamar and Caesar. Caesar is spelled S-Z-A for those of you who don't know. It was the fifth of seven top 10 hits for Kendrick Lamar between 2015 and as recently as last year. And it peaked at number five. He's had 20 top 40s altogether. For Caesar, first of three for her, 2018 until now, her current hit, Kill Bill only actually left the top 10 last week, and she's had 10 top 40 hits. It is the second most streamed Kendrick song on Spotify, 1.2 billion streams behind Humble, which has had 1.8 billion streams. And for Caesar, it's also her second most streamed song on Spotify behind Kiss Me More, and that is technically Doja Cat featuring Caesar. It was the lead single from the soundtrack of the movie Black Panther. It can be heard playing during the main 
end credits of the movie. It was Oscar nominated for Best Original Song, but it lost out to Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper with Shallow from A Star Is Born. There are actually two versions in circulation. There's the Black Panther soundtrack end credits version, which was the original single version. But then a month later, it was replaced on download sites by the version that's on the official soundtrack album. It's identical, except that it makes some changes to Caesar's lyrics a bit in the chorus and also in her guest verse. But let's not get bogged down in different versions of all the stars because it doesn't make huge amount of difference. I don't know a lot about Kendrick Lamar, so I'm going to come at this from a different angle, which is the bit that I do know about and talk about Black Panther. As you rightly say, it was nominated for an Oscar. It was the first of the Marvel films, as far as I can think, to have an original song attached to it the thing with the marvel films is that we're 25 26 films into the current marvel slate and their use of music is phenomenal so i have a 19 year old daughter and if you listen to a spotify wrapped best songs of the year or whatever it is full of stuff that she has heard in marvel films and what they have done is they have introduced a generation of kids to ACDC, to Guns N' Roses, to ELO, to 10CC, to Led Zeppelin Im- immigrant song as in Thor Ragnarok. Guardians of the Galaxy kind of led the way because the music is an integral part of that film, the cassette that Chris Pratt's character has, and that is integral to the part of it. But actually the music, there's hundreds of pop songs have been used in Marvel. Traffic, Dear Mr. Fantasy was in um, Avengers Endgame, which is a weird choice, but there's millions of kids around the world who now know that classic 60s song because they watched it in the Avengers. So obviously the Black Panther was a long gestation and it's an incredibly culturally important moment, not just in film really, and everything about it was incredibly carefully thought through from the casting, from the, obviously it's got a black writer-director crew, Ryan Coogler, the director picked Kendrick Lamar, approached him directly to ask him to produce a soundtrack and obviously wrote uh, songs for it as well. So it is an incredibly important moment and very carefully done. And you cannot overestimate the importance of that film, I don't think, from a black perspective. You know, historians will be writing about it in 50 years as to what it did for representation, what it did for, you know, if you can see it, you can be it kind of thing. You've got a film that is led by incredibly morally righteous, good black characters and lots of women. He just did an incredible job. And I love this song. I don't know anything about Kendrick Lamar. I think I've tried listening to Kendrick Lamar and I don't really like it. But I think this is magnificent. And I don't know whether it's the context that it's in. It probably is. It probably is the context in which I know it that makes it phenomenal in the same way that I don't think my daughter would be listening to Carry On My Wayward Son if she hadn't seen it in the TV show Supernatural. That's sometimes why you love a song is because of the wider context in which you first hear it or in which it lives in your cultural experience. So for me, I love it, but I can't divorce it from the Black Panther experience. And I think that's probably a good thing. I like Scissor. I think her latest album, SOS, is fantastic in places and there's some really good stuff on that i think her vocals on this is great i think he's great it's a great song i bought this at the time because it was on the soundtrack and i was kind of hoping that i would play it more than i have done and i've not played it a lot you know it's not made the crossover into cultural importance you kind of hope it would but then i do come from harrogate which is just a really white town 
I play this from time to time, but I play Pink Hunter by Kendrick Lamar more because I personally prefer it. It never goes down particularly well. It never goes down badly. I prefer the stuff that he does more towards the end of modern funk. In the video, he does seem to be dealing with a bit of a Christ complex, uh, and that seems to be a bit of a thing with a lot of American rappers. And I do sort of think, if I'm honest, Kendrick's voice is kind of helium-tinged ridiculousness, but he makes good contemporary rap it's always well produced. It always moves along nicely. As I say, I prefer his more funk-led stuff. I think The Weeknd nails this kind of stuff better, but it still works. Lyrically, from what I can make out, Scissor is about as coherent as Drake's lyrics. And unfortunately, she does go into the Rihanna slash Sia pointless weird vocalisation stuff, which is a shame. I think she's got a great voice. But then it is production-wise finally revealed without the effects on top of it. I think there's a bit of an auto-tune in there. I think there's a bit of a filter in there. And I think the reveal is actually quite deliberate and it works. She suddenly gets this clean vocal towards the end, which I think is excellent. I can absolutely live without any vocalist running words together like a drunk. And the bit where she does that, that's not for me. But equally, I know it is for loads of kids. Loads of kids love that style. So end of day, I'm a 47-year-old. This isn't aimed at me. Personally, it's not for me. I bought it at the time. As I say, I've played it. It didn't get the response that I was hoping for. I might give this another airing on the basis of having been reminded of it, if you like. It's not my cup of tea, but I do think it's well done. I think it's good. Okay. Grumpy old OG founding father of hip-hop granddad here. I struggled to get a purchase on this. So I turned, as I often do, to a popular lyrics website called Genius.com. Genius.com is a bit like Wikipedia for lyrics, as it lets its registered users annotate sections of the words to add further explanations and background information. Comes in particularly useful when you need to decode hip hop. And that is where you'll find the most heavily annotated tracks. Now, I've never seen Black Panther. So any connections between this track and the movie that it comes from are completely lost on me. I turned to Genius.com for guidance, and I found myself spiralling into a dizzyingly complex world of lyrical interpretation. Line by line, the track is parsed for its precise thematic links to the Black Panther mythology, or for the ways in which it cross-references other tracks by Kendrick Lamar. There are even a number of biblical references which, quote, Chapter and verse. In fact, I don't think I've seen as many detailed textual annotations since I studied Shakespeare for A-level. That got me thinking about other lyricists whose work is picked apart line by line by self-appointed scholars, and my thoughts immediately turned to Bob Dylan. Lo and behold, Bob Dylan and Kendrick Lamar are the only two artists outside the classical and jazz worlds who have received Pulitzer Music Prizes during their lifetimes. Dylan got his as a special citation in 2008. Lamar actually won the prize outright in 2018 for his album, Damn. Groundbreaking moment. So clearly, Kendrick Lamar and Bob Dylan are both hugely significant major artists who write multi-layered and complex songs that deserve close examination. But I have the same problem with both of them in that I just can't be asked to put the work in. At the end of the day, it just feels like a homework assignment. It would help 
if there was something about them which I could immediately warm to, but they both have a style of vocal delivery which prevents me from doing so. There's something a bit nasal and grating about both of them. And also, in both cases, there are exceptions. Dylan has made two albums that I genuinely love, Nashville Skyline and Desire. And Lamar has made one album that I genuinely love, To Pimp a Butterfly. Now, that introduced me to a whole West Coast scene that blends conscious hip-hop with spiritual jazz and Afrocentric funk. It led me to the amazing Kamasi Washington. It led me to the fantastic Anderson Pack and several more lesser-known artists besides. And I spent a lot of time with it. Since then, nah, it all feels like homework again. Sorry, it's not them, it's me. It makes me feel superficial and lazy. And hey, perhaps I am. So, if I can't be asked to decode the meaning, I'm left with the texture and the mood. And in this respect, All the Scars scores highly. It's atmospheric, it's epic, it's dramatic, it's emotional, whatever those emotions might be. And it certainly feels like a movie soundtrack. It has my utmost respect, but it could never win my heart. I think you've got a thing there definitely about the homework nature of Kendrick Lamar stuff. Sometimes it does seem just a bit too clever for its own good for me. The album to Pimper Butterfly, it's got some great tracks on it, but in between every track, there's a spoken word segment, oh, yeah. isn't there? Which I just found broke it down. I just want to listen to some tunes and you're kind of in between every tune getting this spoken word thing that I'm like, that you've got to kind of shut everything off and pay attention to understand what he's going on about, which, you know, sort of spoil that album for me because it's got some fantastic songs on it. And yeah, just as an album, dead clever, but nah. I was reminded of Skinny Man, a British grime rapper. He did an album that had, the tunes were great. And in between, there was just dialogue. You just end up going, you listen to it three times, you go, I can't be bothered. Oh, that's clever. But now maybe I just want a few tunes to romp along. They're often called skits, aren't they? They've been a bane of hip-hop albums since a very early stage. Yeah, that. It's doable, though. Della Soul did skits. Yeah. But they were musical. They had stuff going on and the production it fitted in. You know, you can have a skit in there and it work, or you can have just these things that just stop the party. On one of my favourite hip-hop albums, Dre 2001, Actually, listening back sort of years later, there's a couple of skits on there that are like, oh, that's a bit like takes the misogyny of it all. I mean, you know, we are talking about gangster rap, so misogyny is pretty big part of that. But there are moments where you're going, oh, lines were crossed. Just play the tunes. Let's not even think about toxic masculinity in this episode because we are mercifully free <laughs> from it for one whole week. Do you think also that uh, there comes a time with certain artists, I don't know whether our listeners will feel the same as this, where you feel like you've missed the train. And I feel a bit like that with Kendrick Lamar, that if I, I don't, I wouldn't know where to start. I feel like it's been going on too long. I've been trying to get into Lana Del Rey and she's nine albums in and I don't know where to start. I don't know whether to go in order or... And I just give up because I think it was too hard. And it feels a bit like that with this. Honestly, if I felt like that with Bob Dylan, I wouldn't know where to start. But you just sometimes just ignore an artist because you think, oh, it's too late. Well, if you think about it, if you've got an artist who's, say, five or six albums in before you start listening to it, it's very unlikely that you're going to ever be able to use the ultimate phrase of pop music, which is, I prefer their earlier stuff. 
because you're just not going to know it. And if you can't say, well, I prefer the earlier stuff, what is the point? As Mike has shown us, LL Cool J is the prime example here. Trevor and I, oh, we like the hit. Mike's like, get out. I saw him at a school performance when he was 11. Early 2000s, we were around some friend's house with their daughter, who was then five years old at the time, and we were watching some pop music on TV. S Club 7 came on, performing Don't Stop Moving. All the adults in the room said, actually, this is quite good, isn't it? And we turned to the five-year-old, we like this one. She just looked at the scornfully and said, actually, I prefer their earlier stuff. She was five. <laughs> Underground cult S Club 7. Before S Club 7 sold out. <laughs> Going back to what you were saying before, S Club 7 is my number one most guaranteed to get me on the dance floor song in existence. Don't stop moving. Don't stop moving S Club 7. The second I hear the, the tiny bit of intro in that, just honestly, yeah. that and Chesney Hawks are one and only. Straight in. <laughs> We've all got them. Yep. Go on, Trev. What's yours? What, straight to the dance floor? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, you've opened a can of worms there. Night out in a bar, pub scenario, Human League, Don't You Want Me, or September Earth, Wind and Fire. In a club club, just something fast and hard, generally speaking. Uh, I think when we were talking about uh, H2O, a lot of the tunes that you mentioned being go-to are the ones that are just that bit faster because H2O is just that bit faster than sort of the average dance speed. Uh, so if you take the average dance speed as being all the songs that Nick said that he hated, Mojo, Lady, Stardust Music Sounds Better With You, all that sort of spiller groove jet, you know, that's kind of middle of the road dance music. There it is. It bobbles along at around about 125 beats a minute. It's essentially modern disco. H2O's upwards of 130. Was it baddest of them all you said that you like? Yeah, that's about the same speed. Yeah, dance music's getting back up to there's a tune around at the moment. Calvin Harris's current one's 140 beats a minute. Yeah. Whoa, what's going on there? Uh, a speed come back in fashion. <laughs> <laughs> and what type of speed am I talking speed about? Speed has come back in fashion because it's this speeded up thing. It's a trend, isn't it? Speeded up versions of pop songs on TikTok and stuff is an actual thing. So. Oh, yeah. They're hitting the lower reaches of the iTunes downloads chart now, the speeded up versions. <sighs> I can't begin to make any inroads into that as a genre. Let's do some voting. I'll start. Very tough this week in that none of them for me are remotely bad or remotely hated. Took me a long time to work out who I was going to give the minus one to. I'm going to give the minus one to Susie Quattro because it's just a wee bit generic and hacky and churned out compared to the other ones. So Susie gets the minus one. Kendrick Lamar and Eighth Wonder, both fine records, but sadly both in the meh zone. Meh is a very comparative concept this week. Top three, LL Cool J gets the one point. H2O and Platinum get second place. First place, one of my best discoveries from doing this so far, four tops if I were a carpenter, that gets my three points. Nick, how about you? Yeah, I agree. Middle of the road this week. Most bad and hated only because it's not the sort of thing I like. It's that H- H2O, that one. Not a huge fan. In the Mezzone, I'm with you. I think the Susie Quattro one is just a bit forgettable, really. I can't even remember it now. And the LL Cool J one. In third place, I go for the 60s, the four tops. I love the four tops. Not my favourite, but it's great. Second place, I will have the 2010s and the Kendrick Lamar scissor. Just love the whole package of that and i love i'm not scared 
absolutely love Eighth Wonder. I'm not scared. So, yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I found it difficult to pick a least favourite because I don't think there was a bad song this week. So I have gone Susie Quattro as well, which I do think is a shame. It's not bad. It's just my least favourite out of these tunes. In third place, I've gone LL Cool J. I do prefer the edgier hip-hop stuff, which I know LL Cool J is capable of making. But I do think the story, it's uplifting, it's positive, and it's remarkable that he came through that and has been so successful. Second place, H2O. Second and first place were dead easy for me. They were sort of away above the rest, really. I love the energy of H2O. It's a little bit fairground dance music. I think it's done really well. And Eighth Wonder in first place, comfortably. What an excellent, excellent song. I have the results. In last position with minus two points, Susie Quattro for the 1970s. In the Met Zone, both of our hip-hop tracks, LL Cool J and Kendrick Lamar and Caesar. Third position, three points, H2M Platinum for the 2000s. Second position, four points, the four tops from the 1960s and currently our winner, six points for the 1980s, Eighth Wonder and I'm Not Scared. This is where we hand over the votes to you. All the scores have been reset to zero for season two, but the season one votes aren't lost forever as they're being moved to our new motherboard, where points will continue to accumulate when each season comes to its conclusion process. Ways to vote. We've had a new way to vote this time. If you want to register on our Patreon that we mentioned at the top of the show, patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. You can do so in privacy and seclusion there. Or on Twitter, we are at which decade tops. Gmail, which decade is tops at gmail.com. Facebook, search for which decade is tops or pops and you'll find us. Please specify your first, second and third favourites in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated or at least your least favourite. Any additional comments are more than welcome. Your voting deadline is... (laughs) <laughs> I can't remember what this is at all. <laughs> oh, God. Your voting deadline is currently not known. If you go onto our socials, you will find the voting deadline. So I look forward to seeing you all again for season two, episode two. For now, it's goodbye from Trev. So uh, Goodbye from Nick. Bye-bye. It's goodbye for me. Goodbye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?